This is episode 198 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Teacher Pay for Performance. This episode is part of our ongoing series about education and teaching. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really thrilled to welcome a new guest uh, on the show today. Jim Wyckoff is with us. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. I am glad to be here, Jennifer. Thanks very much for having me. I'll introduce you. Uh, Jim is the Memorial Professor of Education and Policy at the University of Virginia, where he directs Ed Poly Works, a research center on education policy and workforce competitiveness. And today we're going to be talking about teachers and pay for performance. His research focuses on improving teacher effectiveness, especially in low performing schools. In this work, he frequently collaborates with policymakers, most recently with policymakers in the District of Columbia Public Schools, to examine their teacher evaluation and professional development efforts. He earned a BA in economics from Denison University and a PhD in economics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So honored to have you with us today, Jim. Thank you. Oh, and this is my pleasure. All right. We had Dan Goldhaber. In fact, it's through him that I learned about you. Uh, we had him on the show a few weeks ago to talk about teacher supply and where teachers are and where we are short on teachers. And so we got to talking about teacher pay. And he said that typically the pay schedules for teachers don't really take into account performance. However, we would measure performance. At least that was my takeaway from our conversation. So as a starting place, is that correct? Yes. And I don't want to go over ground you've already covered with Dan, but um, teachers are typically paid based on their experience in teaching and their education. And so as a result, teachers within a school district, for example, with the same experience and the same education typically get paid the same, regardless of where they teach, uh, what school they're teaching in, and or their performance. So happy to go into more details. My guess is that you and Dan may have already covered some of that ground. Well, yeah, I think we're going to get into some of that more in our conversation today. Uh, but that was sort of an aha for me. That's not how it works in the private world, which is the one that I'm that I know most about. And of course, it gets us into the whole unions uh, question that we'll talk about here. But so, take us back over time a bit first. Like, have there been attempts to tie teacher pay to teacher quality or effectiveness, and how have those worked out? Yeah, there's a, a long history of uh, experimenting with pay for performance in or merit pay, as it's sometimes called, in education. Um, and so for at least the last 40 years that I'm aware of, you know, there have been various attempts to incorporate versions of merit pay into the teaching profession. 
And I think the basic idea behind pay for performance as it is in the private sector is that it's thought to provide an incentive that may induce stronger effort or improved performance from teachers. And I think in some ways it's a way for policymakers to align the effort of teachers with the goals of policymakers, and that is to improve student achievement. So those efforts around pay for performance received a, a really intensive push during the Obama administration under Secretary of Education uh, Duncan. Oh. So several grant programs that came out on the heels of or in response to the Great Recession were available to states and school districts. And, and most of those grant programs, things like Race to the Top that you may have heard of. Oh, yeah, I have heard that. Mm-hmm. Another program called the Teacher Incentive Fund, which is perhaps a little well, well less known. But both of those privileged effective teaching and supported the school district's efforts to provide additional pay to teachers based on measures of their effectiveness. And in addition, in the 2000s, there have been a number of other one-off kinds of analyses of various versions of pay for performance. And so there is, I think, a long history. And in, in terms of how these have worked out, I think the high-level summary is that pay for performance uh, has either had sort of small effects on improving outcomes for kids or no effects. Oh. And when you sort of dig under the hood a little bit to try to figure out why it's not been more effective, I think the underlying assumptions behind the way these got implemented frequently were that teachers were not putting forth sufficient effort. So if we gave them an incentive, they would work harder and they knew what to do and it was just a matter of increasing their effort and that an incentive would do that. And there were at least a few analyses and interventions in various places, Nashville, Chicago, New York City, for example, uh, I think we're based on that kind of an assumption, or maybe teachers were putting up uh, sufficient effort, but uh, these incentives would induce them to learn how they could help improve outcomes for their kids more effectively. And what I took away from that work, both the federal programs, but also these other initiatives in various places, was that it, it was a little more complicated than than just the lack of effort. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's funny how that works out that way, right? It's always yeah. more complicated. I'm learning with this topic. Yeah, so I think that um, some of the lessons that came from these were that these were all initiatives that were viewed to be of short duration. These were programs that were in place for a year or two. Ah. They were also programs for which, in in general, not always, but for the most part, teachers were not provided with any additional support that would help them understand how they could become more effective mm -hmm. at teaching the kids in their classrooms. And so I think that in, and if we'll probably get into it a little bit later, um, in contrast to some work that I've done with some colleagues in DC, it's, I think in hindsight, perhaps, and again, I, I think at the time, these were certainly well-intended and well-designed efforts, but I think in hindsight, we learned that Implementing these things at scale where teachers can view them over an extended period of time, have a chance to adapt to them over a period of time, and have the incentives be sufficiently large that teachers will 
see the advantage of responding to those incentives, but also that they'll get the supports that will help them understand how they can perform better. Um, so I think when I said it's more complicated, I think it's because probably at least a couple of those pieces were missing from the early efforts. And I think there are examples that when you see those pieces added, um, we see a stronger response to pay for performance. Okay, let's let's step back here for a second and and talk about what problem we're trying to solve here. So, uh, this is a bit of a meta experience. I'm going to quote Wikipedia to you about you. It's <laughs> <laughs> always, always dangerous. <laughs> yeah, right. So tell me if I'm wrong. So, uh, Wikipedia says that in your research, you found that low income, low achieving, and non-white students, especially in urban schools are generally taught by the least skilled teachers with salaries rarely leaning against and sometimes even contributing to this sorting. So is that right? And, and what does that mean? That's probably said better than I would have said it, but yes, I agree with the statement. Okay. Um, so in this instance, Wikipedia seems to have gotten it right. Yeah, um, let me give you an example uh, to illustrate what I think that means. So this is from a few years ago, um, but Previously, had done a fair amount of work with, with folks, policymakers in New York State and New York City. So if you look across all the elementary schools in New York State, for example, what you see are that the kids who perform very poorly are highly concentrated in a relatively few number of schools. So just mm. to put a data point on that, 70% of the kids who are performing the very lowest on either the math or the ELA uh, student achievement tests in New York State are housed in just 20% of the schools. So 70% of the students who perform very lowly are in 20% of the schools. So oh. really high concentration of the low performing kids. This gets back to uh, a discussion we may get into about the enormous economic and racial segregation that exists in schools today. But given that, um, we also then looked in those schools where there were really high concentrations of these low-performing kids, and we looked at the qualifications of the teachers. And systematically, the schools in which the, there were the highest concentration of these low-performing kids had the least qualified teachers across many different measures of qualifications. And happy to talk about the details if that's useful. But because within school districts, teachers are paid the same regardless of where they teach, and many would argue that teaching in a very high poverty school where kids aren't performing well, where resources often aren't the greatest, is a more challenging job than teaching in more affluent schools in the same district, but yet those teachers are paid the same amount of money, so many teachers will gravitate towards transfer to these more affluent schools, leaving the schools with the high concentrations of low performing kids with the least qualified teachers. And to get back to the part of that, that comments on pay, it's because they're paid the same for what most people would argue is a much more challenging job. Mm -hmm. Effectively, that puts them at a disadvantage. So when we talk about least skilled teachers or least effective, uh, and you mentioned different measures of, of uh, looking at that, 
So give me a couple examples. Is it experience, education, outcomes, all of the above? What, what, yes, all of the above. So, oh, okay. uh, so for example, if you look at either tail of that distribution, the schools with the uh, highest concentration, the schools with the lowest concentration, the schools with the highest concentration have about twice as many inexperienced teachers as the schools with the lowest concentration. So just looking at experience, you can see yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. that's a that's a pretty objective measure. And you also get the same thing if you compare the undergraduate schools where these teachers attended uh, in terms of the competitiveness of those schools. The ones with a high concentration of low-performing kids, many more went to less competitive colleges. That may not be a great measure of what you'll become, whether you'll become a good teacher, However, they're much more likely, four times as likely, to have failed the test that teachers have to pass in order to become a teacher the first time they took it. So they probably eventually passed it, but as a measure of their qualifications, four times as many failed that test if they are teaching in those highly concentrated, low-performing schools than if they were teaching in schools that were much less concentrated with low performers. So you get the same story looking across many of these measures that the qualifications of teachers in those schools with the lowest performing kids are just not as great. And we also see some of the same things when we are able to connect uh, those teachers to the test scores of their kids in terms of how much improvement those teachers are able to make in the outcomes of their kids. We see similar disparities. Yeah, so you'd have to say here that data starts to be pretty compelling when you pile all those things together, maybe singly on their own, you could make arguments against them. But yeah, preponderance of evidence starts to feel, uh, yeah, pretty weighty. Yeah, I would agree. So let's review for a second the factors that contribute to bad teacher. I guess we could call them less effective teachers that are teaching in I'll call them bad schools, but or we can call them low-performing schools. So what have you found about those factors that contribute to that? Yeah, I, so there are over 3 million public school teachers in this country. So I don't want to um, make the mistake of sort of generalizing too broadly. There are lots of wonderful teachers teaching in those schools with, you know, low-performing kids. And, you know, I've talk to some of those teachers and, you know, these are people who are doing a great job. Oh yeah. But on average, when we look at those low performing schools and we examine the teachers that I just described to you a minute ago, I think there are a few different things. One of which we've already talked about. It is this, what's the so-called single salary uh, compensation schedule. So it is this notion that regardless of which school in a district you teach, regardless of how challenging it is to teach in that school, you're going to get paid the same amount for the most part. There are some districts that offer slight bonuses for teaching in those higher poverty schools, but those differences are usually pretty small. And I think most teachers would say, don't compensate them for what they see as the differences. Okay. Probably at least as importantly, I think, are the working conditions in those schools. And so Some of that gets back to the fact that some of the kids in those schools are lower performing, don't come to school on some days quite as prepared to to learn as other kids might. A lot of this may get back to, you know, something to do with their home life, 
you know, a single parent who doesn't have time to spend helping kids at home. And there's a whole variety of factors, but so students might be one of these conditions in a school that might make it more challenging. Okay. I think when you ask good teachers, when they leave a school or a district, what was the single most important thing that influenced their decision? Many of them will describe the school leadership, the principal, that the principal was not supportive, did not provide them with help uh, to navigate what is, I think, a remarkably challenging job in general, but made so much more challenging in schools with high poverty kids. And principals can make an enormous difference. And, And you can hear this anecdotally, but we've done surveys of teachers who are leaving schools and ask them why. And the single largest factor is typically the school leadership. And in the same ways that principals, the teachers often end up in these school, the weaker teachers end up in these high poverty schools. It's also the case that I think there is less convincing but emerging evidence that weaker principals end up in these schools as well. I see. So I I think that's another factor. And then there are, in some urban schools especially, there are rules about the way teachers can that govern the hiring and transfer of teachers that I think systematically work against these high poverty schools. Such as? So many school districts, um, teachers can decide they don't wanna return to teaching over the summer. So if they're making that decision in July or even August, then the school has to hire somebody very late in the game. Mm-hmm. Many good teachers have already taken jobs, you know, back in the spring uh, as they exit a teacher education program and other schools that are have more planned retirement policies are doing their hiring in May and June. So there are fewer good teachers left on the market late in the game. And this has been documented a number of times that hiring late makes it very challenging to hire good teachers. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, those late hires often are allocated to these schools with a disproportionate share of high poverty kids. There are also some rules governing transfers in some urban schools where um, teachers with more seniority, more experience, are able to effect a transfer from the school they're in to another school even over the objection of the principal in that school to which they would be transferring. And so these are, in some cases, union negotiated rules. And as a result, they're typically moving from higher poverty schools to lower poverty schools, creating that vacancy. Yeah, That makes it challenging for the high poverty school to then recruit a new teacher And when they do, inevitably, that's an inexperienced teacher. So you're replacing a more experienced teacher with a less experienced teacher. And so I think those rules have made it more challenging for some of these high poverty schools. Yeah, definitely a perfect storm of all these things coming together. I was really surprised to learn from one of my guests that teachers generally take a job within 50 miles of where they got their certification. Yes. So how, tell me how you think that might play into this issue of teacher of, of uh, schools searching for high quality teachers. Yeah, so I think it's um, I think it poses uh, 
at least a couple of problems. So most immediately, and it's not just within 50 miles. If you look at this data, then um, they often take a job in the same school district in which they grew up, you know, oh. in the district that is near their hometown. And so you can imagine that, that if we think about the, the way matriculation to college works and entry into teacher preparation, that would work to the advantage of more affluent communities where, you know, a, mm-hmm. a student graduates, goes off to college, gets a teacher education degree, and then comes back to that community. We have fewer college graduates from very high poverty communities. And so there are going to be fewer of those people returning to those communities to take those teaching jobs. So I think in the urban sense, this attraction to home Mm -hmm. that has been found in some of the data, I think makes it more challenging for some of these high poverty schools and high poverty districts to be able to attract teachers uh, to those places, but also retain teachers, even if they recruit people who uh, are from outside the district, that may, I I had the interesting occasion to be able to sit next to a school superintendent a few years ago and started asking him questions like this about how, in fact, you recruit new teachers. And he said, I never recruit an inexperienced teacher. This was a suburban school district that was considered to be among the best in that area. And he said, I always let teachers go work someplace else for four or five years, and then I hire them. So we only hire experienced teachers who have developed their skills and who have demonstrated their effectiveness. And inevitably, what that means is is the less attractive districts, the higher poverty districts that are hiring the inexperienced teachers, providing them with that learning experience over the first few years of their career, they then end up transferring to a different school or a different district. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, it's an interesting position for him to take. I mean, I get it, obviously. I'm yeah. sure in his <laughs> shoes, I would do the same. But yeah, they're getting that experience. It's a little harsh to say this, but at the expense of somebody else. Yeah, exactly. So are there any really disruptive changes to this whole perfect storm, as I'm calling it now, that have attempted and have any of them worked? Yeah, I think um, as you know, our conversation has sort of illustrated, there are many, many things that I think go into this issue of how you might think about improving the quality of teaching in especially these high poverty schools. So I think there have been a few places that I'm aware of that have really come in and attempted to disrupt business as usual. Um, New York City did this back under the Bloomberg administration when uh, Mayor Bloomberg was the mayor of New York City a number of years ago. He hired a school chancellor, Joe Klein, and over uh, roughly a 10-year period, they made a number of changes to that system. Some of the changes are things we've already discussed um, in an attempt to, and they put, you know, they were, uh, they made many changes, but most of their changes or many of those changes focused on trying to improve the quality of teaching. They understood if they were going to really address issues of student uh, outcomes and student achievement, that they needed to leverage teachers in order to make that happen. There are other things you can do, but you can't work around. (laughs) Students spend their time in classrooms. You can't work around that issue. And Mm -hmm. so 
um, a number of the changes that they made attempted to focus on many of these factors that we've just been discussing. School leadership uh, tried to get at some issues of teacher compensation. He negotiated with the teachers union around these rules regarding transfers of more senior teachers. So there was an example. And I think arguably you can say, that, was it a dramatic change? I would say no. Oh. But most people, I think, would agree that outcomes for kids improved during that 10-year period in New York City. I think you see uh, a similar thing over the last 10 years in D.C., and we can talk more about that, but perhaps more famously, M Michelle Rhee came in and uh, really made some dramatic changes in the D.C. public schools beginning in 2007, 2008, and they've continued that, you know, to today. I think you can argue, and, and there is certainly some pretty good evidence to support the fact that D.C. public schools have gotten meaningfully better over oh, that 10-year period. I see. I think there are some other places as well, but those are two examples. So in D.C., can, uh, can you give us some ideas of what uh, she, I presume it's a she, uh, did? And, and like, what does the data show about how much things changed after that? Yeah, a good question. Um, so just to give you a bit of background, D.C. had a very long history, like many of these urban districts, of very low performance. Um, you can go back 40 years and find newspaper articles and other ways of documenting that arguably D.C. might have been one of the worst in terms of low performing students, school districts in the country prior to 2007. It seems so, so ironic. I I've guess I've gotten wind of that, you know, through headlines and things, but it just seems so ironic. It's, you know, it's yes. where it's where our government is. It is. And it largely gets back, I think, well, again, it's, it's a function of many things, but like many urban districts, the D.C. public schools are highly segregated in terms of economics and race. I see. And I think that plays an important part of this. So when she came in, she made a number of changes. And basically, she took the view, we don't have time to wait and let this happen over a long period of time. There are kids who are currently in the DC public schools who get one shot at school, and we can't wait 10 years for those kids to end up with a better school system. We have to make it happen quickly. So she made a number of changes, but again, the focus of those changes was on improving the quality of teaching in the DC public schools. And she did many things, one of which was she created, along with a bunch of other folks working with her and some academics, actually, who provided advice on how to do this, she created a very rigorous teacher evaluation system. So mm -hmm. actually, every employee, principals, staff, teachers, everybody gets evaluated annually in the D.C. public school system. The evaluation for teachers is, is based on multiple measures of teacher effectiveness. I'd argue none of them are perfect, but taken together, these measures probably provide a pretty good assessment of a teacher's effectiveness. And then she put pretty high stakes on the outcomes of, these, of this teacher evaluation. So teachers are evaluated every year. And if they perform very, very poorly, uh, they can be fired at the end of that school year. And if they perform very, very well, especially 
over a couple year period, they are eligible for very large bonuses, bonuses on the order of $25,000. Oh, okay. Real money, real money. Yes, real money and increases in their base pay. So in DC, after seven or eight years, you can be making $120,000, $130,000, which is, as you probably know, substantially higher pay for uh, a public school teacher than you would get almost anywhere else, especially that early in your career. So Mm -hmm. they put pretty high stakes, both on the top end of this measure of effectiveness, but also at the bottom end. And some teachers who performed near the bottom were told, you've got a year to improve. We think you can make it and we're going to provide supports for you. You've got a year to improve, but if you don't improve in one year, you will be fired. So it put a pretty strong incentive in front of many of those teachers. As you can imagine, this policy was very controversial, Mm -hmm. but it has, I think, arguably been fairly effective. There is some pretty good evidence that when a low-performing teacher leaves a public school in D.C. and is just replaced by whoever enters that classroom next, the person they hire to replace that teacher in that classroom, that student performance goes up anywhere from two or three months to a half a year of learning. Wow. So big, big gains in terms of what the kids are learning based on just exiting a teacher who by the system was assessed to be low performing. DC public schools over the last 10 years, this system's been in place, have been the fastest approving urban district that's measured by the NAEP, as you probably know, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, sorry for the jargon, no, no worries. is the nation's, consider the nation's report card. So whenever you read in the paper something about, for example, the Black-White Achievement Gap, mm-hmm. it's based on outcomes from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And so they measure the performance of several larger urban school districts, including DC, and DC is the fastest improving of those districts during this period in which they have been engaged in these reforms. So that doesn't prove the reforms caused the improvement, but it is suggestive that DC has been doing something that has improved outcomes for kids. I have to tell you that this is one of the first and only really significant pieces of good news that I've had on this <laughs> podcast since I've started doing this series. That's really inspiring. I'm getting uh, chills talking about that. But I have to say one thing that kind of shocks me in that story is that is the importance of getting rid of a bad teacher. Like It's not just that a bad teacher is neutral. It's that he or she is actually sort of holding the students back because if you can replace that person with anyone coming in off the street, then they do better. Yeah. And Jennifer, you just struck on the key element of why this has worked in DC. They are able to hire, DC is a pretty vibrant market for new teachers, young people. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, DC is an attractive place to live for young folks. And as a result, they have been fairly successful at hiring what are relatively good teachers. So this works when the new teacher, as you suggested, is more effective than the exiting teacher. Mm -hmm. There are some school districts that have very high poverty where they would struggle to make that same trade-off. They would struggle to hire a new teacher 
who was as or, or more effective than the exiting teacher. Now, that's not to say that it couldn't happen, but I think DC has done a number of other things that I think have led to some of this success. But And just to, to be clear, there are about 3,500 teachers in DC at any given time. And in any given year, there may be, you know, in terms of the teachers who are forced to exit by this system, that is, who are told, we will not rehire you for next year because your performance is so low. That is usually on the order of 2% of teachers. Right. So it's not a lot of teachers that are, for which this is occurring, but when it does, it has enormous effects for the kids. Yeah, that's what's so startling, right? Is Yeah, I'm sure it's just a few number of teachers, but huge impact. So uh, just so I have a little bit of information. So her name is Michelle Reed, did you say? R-H-E-E. Oh, Reed, okay. Now she was, to be fair, she was only there for the first two years of this. And I won't take you down the, the whole road of politics in D.C., but for much of that period, a woman named Kaya Henderson, who had been Rees' deputy chancellor when she started this, but Kaya Henderson took over as chancellor. And for most of that period that I just described, she was in charge of this. And so, uh, but many people may know who Michelle Rhee is. She was on the cover of Time Magazine back when all this was happening because she was very outspoken about her approach. Few people I think knew who Kaya Henderson was because she was much more behind the scenes getting the the work done. And I think in part because, you know, Chancellor Rhee was fairly outspoken uh, and controversial. Her tenure in the job was limited. But, you know, again, I I haven't seen any analysis of this. That may be what's necessary. Somebody comes in, Mm -hmm. shakes the place up, heads it in a good direction, and then hands off to somebody who can, you know, administer that over an extended period of time. I don't want to suggest that mistakes weren't made and that the approach always worked well, because I I think there are certainly examples that that isn't the case in D.C., but they they had a philosophy, they had a mission, they stuck to it over a long period of time. And I will tell you, I've rarely encountered a group of people who are more relentlessly focused on implementation than this group. They they wanted to make sure these programs saturated into classrooms and that teachers came to believe that this was a system that was going to persist. They had to pay attention to it, but they were going to receive support from the school district to help them make that transition. And so I think that's part of what this, why this may have been successful there is that it was, it has been implemented over the last 10 years. They've updated it periodically. I think they're now in what they're calling the, the name of this evaluation system in DC is impact. Okay. And so they're now on impact 4.0 where they've made four sets of changes to this over time in response to feedback from teachers and you know their own assessment of whether they were getting to where they needed to be quickly enough. So a number of changes have been made but the basic approach has remained the same. Oh, so fascinating. Yeah, what a what an interesting story. And I just have to say here, my listeners won't be surprised, but you know, this idea of incremental change 
and wrapping back into the system that you've created, what your lessons learned have been. I just think that's really a powerful approach to problem solving. Yeah, and I think it I think that's right. And I also think that gained they gained credibility with teachers who were quite skeptical when this whole thing started. But when teachers understood that their feedback could help change the system in ways that made it more beneficial for the teachers, but yet didn't sacrifice what the policymakers thought were the key elements. So they've navigated that space over the last, and they're in the midst of doing it right now. In fact, their impact is undergoing a big review under current Chancellor Farabee to see whether they can make more improvements. Yeah, I I do think sometimes what happens in the conversation really fast is we go from talking about bad schools to immediately it becomes an a conversation that's basically anti-teacher. And I've Mm -hmm. heard from so many of my guests, this notion of support for the teachers, support, you know, be on the teacher's side. And I think sometimes we get confused. So I have to ask, since I'm sure this is in my uh, listeners' minds, when they first brought up this program, I presume that they had to work within the confines of the union contracts. Would that be correct? And and how did that play out? Yeah, to some extent, yes. Um, Because DC in many ways is, as you probably know, a creature of Congress, the the US Congress, Mm -hmm. teacher evaluation was not part of the bargaining agreement. So they were able to effect some of these changes in a way that the union had to, and they wanted to participate with the union, but they didn't have to reach consensus on some elements of this. And so they were in a somewhat, from that perspective, um, advantaged position to moving this along in a way that some school districts would not be able to do. Mm. Well, that's such a great story. I'm glad we've uh, taken a little bit of time with that. So I have to ask, since we just have been talking about the DC schools being a little bit different, do you think some of those lessons are transferable to other districts or would you caution us against doing that? I think several of the lessons are transferable, but some may not be. And we, we touched on a little bit on that latter point. But I think the notion that if you're going to implement a policy, you implement it rigorously and persistently. Um, and you communicate with teachers about what your goals are, how you're trying to do that. I, I think, you know, not everyone would agree that, you know, teachers were viewed as a partner in this effort, and maybe early on they weren't. Mm-hmm. But I think certainly policymakers in DC over the last five, six, seven years have tried to incorporate teacher voice into these issues. Again, some would disagree with that, but I think that it's important to get back to this notion of implementation, that whatever policy you decide is going to be where you want to put your effort, that you implement it fairly rigorously. I, for the life of me, to be honest, don't understand why teacher evaluation seems to have fallen out of favor in national discussions. You talk to many people and they would say, oh, that was a failed policy. It didn't work. Oh, hmm. And my reaction to that is, well, it didn't work when it wasn't implemented well, or it didn't work um, when it 
didn't provide support for teachers to help them understand how they could improve and succeed in that system. So I think I, I'm a little uh, frustrated that I, I think in most other professions, people get evaluated and, and want to see that feedback they get through that evaluation process as a way to help them improve. Mm-hmm. And I think unless we're, we're doing that with teachers, then it's hard for me to understand how teachers will be able to improve. And, and certainly the teachers in these highest poverty schools, I think there's a good case to be made that we're doing a disservice to the kids if they don't improve. So I, I think rigorous teacher evaluation, not in the accountability or gotcha sense, but in the developmental Mm-hmm. formative feedback sense can be really helpful for teachers, but people have to be willing to implement that in a way where we're honest about what effective teaching is, and we're giving feedback that both identifies pe- teachers' strengths, but also their weaknesses. Yeah, I'm sure you're right that that it depends on how you go at it, whether or not it's a gotcha, or whether or not it's a, you know, let us help you get better at your job. So let's go back to money. And this is, I come out of the business world and personally was highly motivated by money. And I Mm -hmm. don't think I'm an unusual person, but often we do uh, encounter a lot of studies that I'm always very curious about that indicate that pay is not important, that that's not why people work. And it's like, hmm, that seems very strange to me. So let's talk about Mm -hmm. money for teachers. And it's interesting with the DC situation that they were putting significant amounts of money on the table. What have you found as far as pay for performance goes? Well, let me, if it's okay, I'll broaden the discussion just to teacher pay. Um, Yeah, no, let's do it. I think there's a ton of evidence that teachers respond to compensation. I'm shocked. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure you are. And I don't think that's inconsistent with the notion that most teachers didn't get into it for money. I mean, in general, oh. teachers aren't paid well, but but that's not to say that money doesn't matter to teachers. Right. And I think there's a ton of research that would support the notion that compensation makes a difference in terms of where teachers decide to work or how long they decide to remain in teaching, for example. And so the fact that we pay teachers typically very poorly I think is part of the issue that we have with teachers. I think that the notion of some sort of performance-based compensation makes some sense. I think there are legitimate concerns about that. I really do think, while teaching probably seems like a a solitary endeavor where a teacher's in a classroom with his or her students, teaching, I think, done well is often a team sport where um, Mm -hmm. groups of teachers work together or they work with their principals. So the notion that I can isolate Jennifer's effectiveness from the other teachers who might teach in the same grade, I think is a little tricky. I certainly think there are teachers in the grade that are better than others. And so we ought to do that. I think we just need to be a little careful about whether we're setting this up as a zero sum game where only some teachers can benefit. I mean, in DC, there are pay for performance, the number of teachers receiving those bonuses and especially the increases in base pay has just grown over time Uh as more teachers have responded to becoming more effective. And so, again, there's some obvious design elements here, 
about how we implement pay for performance. But in general, I think providing people with compensation, if we believe they've done a great job, if you walk into a school and ask the principal or ask the teachers, who are the best teachers in the school, there will be large agreement on who those people are. So this isn't a secret. Mm -hmm. And when those teachers who are judged to be the most effective teachers are told they're going to get paid the same as the teachers who are doing a lousy job, then it tells you that, you know, doing a good job doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to reward you the same way. And so I think part of if you want to keep those very high performing teachers, giving them a signal, you're doing a great job and we're going to give you more money as a result. And I think we should do a whole lot of other things for those teachers. We have to tell them they're doing a good job and, and reward them in, in ways other than compensation. But, but the point here is that I think few people will be surprised when we reward some teachers and maybe an increasing number with higher compensation. Well, yeah, you're obviously preaching to the choir here to me. The other thing that crosses my mind as you're talking is with my limited experience with teaching, you know, being a good teacher is actually a lot of hard work, Yes. you know, and so just putting in that extra effort, I can imagine making decisions based on that, you know, going that extra effort to do that extra hour of prep or or those, you know, assigning assignments that are going to require 10 hours of grading versus assignments that are only going to require one hour. Of I mean, all those little things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely, money would matter to me. So let's talk about teacher unions again. In the efforts that have been made, I have uh, heard people say that teachers unions in general are against pay for performance ideas. Has that been your experience or, or, or what do you see? Yeah, I think that's generally true. Um, and, you know, there, you can see evidence of that when, you know, during the grant programs that I described during the Obama administration, lots of school districts that participated in those needed to get agreements from their teachers union. And there were times when those deals fell through because the unions wouldn't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's true. And I think that to be fair to the union on this, they, they often cite the fact that those evaluation systems that are used to, to judge who's doing a more effective job at teaching, that they are subjective and that, they don't like the notion of subjective measures being used to differentiate among their members. I think that, you know, that's certainly a concern. We ought to be, we ought to have a lot of concern about how we're measuring effectiveness and it needs to be a fair measure, but inevitably any measure is going to differentiate. So and I think at, at its root, that, that is the problem that the union probably has, that mm-hmm. differentiating among members is, is not something that works well for them in general. Yeah, that's the problem with the idea of organization is that there's an implication that you're going to protect everyone from you know top to bottom, that everyone gets protected equally. And that does kind of fly in the face of differentiating people based on performance. I I mean, it's, it's a little baffling sometimes, right? Because you often say to yourself, well, unions should embrace this, you know, this would be better for teachers, but, but there are, there are forces that work that are in conflict with each other. Yeah, I think that's right. Are, Are there any 
myths or misconceptions about teachers that are held by the public that you think we should give up that you'd like to clarify? I, you sort of touched on this a minute ago. You know, I, I think my take is that effective teaching is rocket science. It is brain surgery. <laughs> um, and, and, and in particular, it is a science that can be learned, right? This isn't like you're born to be a teacher and only those people endowed at birth with that ability are the people who are going to be great at it. I, I do think that it is enormously complicated and involves a lot of work, as you said, but also teachers have to hold in their head a whole bunch of things at one time because really good teachers are looking at a class of 23, 24 kids, and those are 24 different kids. It's not one class. Mm -hmm. They're trying to navigate helping each of those 24 kids learn as much as they can. And that means they have to hold a bunch of things in their head and think about how they work with that group. And I think it's just really, when you see it done well, it seems like magic, but it's yeah. not magic. That that makes it, I think that just uh, doesn't give it the credit that it deserves. And so this gets back to my, you know, the point we've touched on before that I think we ought to, there ought to be a lot more respect for people who teach well, and we ought to pay them. And that's basically the point that folks in DC said, we are happy to pay people who demonstrate that they are really good at this. And we want to pay them a lot of money because they are valuable. And I think we just need to think about how we can adopt that attitude and back it up in terms of the, the support we provide to public school teachers. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, go teachers, because I've certainly benefited from great teachers in my life. And I'll just uh, mention here a little plug for my own podcast. The first, I think it was the first episode we did in the series on education and teaching was with a guy at Cornell who uh, his advice to teachers is teach like a scholar. And so that episode was just really interesting about how he has yeah. investigated this profession and, and how to get better and better and better at it. And, you know, it's just, it's pretty amazing with that profession, how high you can go, how good you can get, uh, but there's always more to learn. Yeah, that, that's great advice, I think. Uh, and that's exactly right. That good teachers are constantly wanting to take advantage of evidence about how they can get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you had a magic wand, uh, what changes would you make to improve our bad schools? Okay. So if this really is a magic wand, I don't have to worry about how practical these suggestions are. Oh, no, it's magic. Yeah. Have at it. Okay. Uh, the first one is I'd, I'd figure I, I would do away with economic and racial segregation in schools. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think that is, I, to be honest, I think that is one of the prime stumbling blocks to having made progress in terms of very low performing schools. And there are places, to be fair, that are are working in productive ways towards that. Okay, so it's not just magic. So yeah, so tell me, how what would we do to achieve that? So So part of it is the recognition that helping kids who come to school with learning disadvantages, which, as you know, the gap between economics and race begins well before kids show up in school. It begins even before they go to early childhood, but it emerges in early childhood. So I think 
funding schools in a way that's consistent with a recognition of the challenges that schools make would be part of it. But to get around, to get to the segregation issue, I think there's some interesting ideas and there's been some interesting successes uh, around the notion of creating between district magnet schools um, that might sit near the border of two school districts or to schools that draw school that draw students in a more integrated way, either across school boundaries or across school district boundaries, mm-hmm. and that we fund those schools in a way where those kids are getting a great education. I think there is many parents, I think, struggle with the notion of wanting to send their kids to a diverse school because they believe their kid, middle and upper middle income white families believe their kid won't get as good an education. No, they might be right. They might be, but I think there's also evidence that their kids will be better prepared for the world we live in today and will live in over the next 20, 30 years if they have a more diverse group of peers. But what that means is we can't staff those schools with the least effective teachers, the least effective principals. Um, I think we've got good examples from the charter school network and other places and some public schools where even very high poverty schools can exhibit enormous gains in learning if the teachers and the leadership in those schools have the resources they need. No, that's really great. Amen to, we were just talking about that in our previous podcast about having experiences in public school that you wouldn't otherwise have had and and mixing it up and you know I am a big mm-hmm. fan of diversity in term in all ways you know mixing it up with p- people who don't vote the same way you do you know all, all those things I think really enrich us and and enrich our nation and I think that's a real problem that often parents who are behaving in a certain way are accused of being racist when really what they are is very their child focused. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so much the color of the skin of the people that the kids are going to be associating with. Although me in my position, I'd say that's great. It's that they're really worried about the education that their kids are going to get. So we confuse those things. Uh, I think we at times do. And, you know, part of it is I think parents need to understand that in some of this evidence that, in fact, their kids will be, in fact, better off, not worse off. Mm -hmm. But I think this is also where, you know, the associated, I don't know, um, wand that we need is that we cannot continue to disinvest in public education. And that's just been certainly during the recession of the pandemic, it may be somewhat understandable, but this has been a longer term trend. And and the schools that are hurt the most by that are typically these schools where the kids come from the least advantaged backgrounds. That's what I worry about as well, that the gap will widen now, not just in our schools, but across our nation because of the pandemic. Yeah. Well, this has just been just a really great conversation. Thank you so much. And before I let you go, I know I'm pushing up against the clock here. Uh, Is there anything you'd like to share with the audience, how they could follow your work or learn more about these ideas? Sure. If you just Google Ed Policy Works uh, at University of Virginia, you'll go to our website and 
I work with a bunch of great colleagues and graduate students and you know, many of them are doing really interesting creative work that I think uh, your listeners might find interesting. Yeah, good. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for the work that you do. I, I really appreciate it on behalf of our country. And thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I've really enjoyed it. This has been a great conversation. And thanks for making it uh, available to more people. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.